Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindsRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased to be speaking with the novelist Philip Kraske, author of the new and intriguingly titled book, Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees, which I have to say is an excellent novel that we're going to be discussing at some length in just a moment. Philip Kraske was born in Detroit, spent his formative years in Ohio and Minnesota, graduated from the University of Minnesota with a bachelor's degree in international relations, and since the 1980s has been living in Madrid, teaching English and writing, often on political matters, and in recent years branching out into authoring novels, of which the current one that we're going to discuss is, I think, number five, Philip Kraske. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program. Well, thank you for having me, Julian. Yes, it's uh, number five in my, my little canon, yes. Excellent. Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. Wonderful title. Um, it's a book that you sent to me, and uh, I very much enjoyed this book, uh, which is really quite saying something, because as listeners will know, I'm not a very literary person. One of my faults, uh, I tend not to read many novels. Um, but this one really did grab my attention. It's, I think, a gripping thriller. But it's more than just a thriller. It's funny and um, intriguing as you go through it. But I think most importantly, for me anyway, it's uh, it has imaginatively important things to say about some aspects of what's often referred to as the deep state and its activities. Um, don't know what you think of that. Anyway, yeah. more of that in just... Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, before we move on, do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's about right. I, I would call that book and um, and my others just generally literary thrillers. They're thrillers, but they're not Tom Clancy thrillers where it's sort of, you know, bang, bang, shoot them up and uh, all of that. Uh, mm. I like to write a thriller sort of on the line of John le Carré, where mm. people who like a thriller can enjoy it and people who write who like good writing can enjoy it. Absolutely. And get from it very important facts through this imaginative, creative world but it touches on real things in the world and actually, i mean one of the things i really like about this is of course you draw into it although it's a fictitious narrative you draw into it so many things from the real world that actually amazingly it illuminates some of those things we'll get into that a little bit later um first could you um tell me a little bit more about yourself phil i said at the beginning that you teach english in spain i'd like to know what kind of english teaching you actually do and how that fits into this whole business of writing projects well, I teach English mainly in Spanish companies. I'm self-employed. I contract directly with companies. I go to the companies and uh, teach English mainly to uh, executives and staff. Um, that was my phone. It um, is a kind of work that leaves me a lot of time for writing because mainly between, say, 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock, which is the Spanish lunch hour, I normally don't have classes because people are sort of in the middle of their work day. So that's when I sit down and write. And uh, so it gives me both uh, a means of making a living and it gives me uh, sort of blocks of time that any writer needs to actually uh, put together a novel. And you've been living in Europe, specifically Spain, since the 1980s, quite a long time. Um, do you actually prefer living over there than in the US? Well, especially if you're from Minnesota like me, Julian, the... Uh, <laughs> The weather here in Spain is, is a heck of a lot better. There are actually a lot of famous Minnesotans, but every single one of them makes his fortune outside of Minnesota. 
Um, the Cohen brothers, for example, uh, are from actually from my area. They, of course, made it big out in Hollywood. If Scott Fitzgerald and uh, Bob Dylan, Charles Schultz, who wrote uh, Snoopy and uh, Charlie Brown, they all made it big once they left. So uh, that's one thing. Also, I just uh, I like Spanish life. I could live in America comfortably. I don't, don't have any problem with that. But, you know, I've uh, just uh, found a way of life that I, I enjoy and have always just stayed. I studied here in my third year of university, you see, and so I returned after I'd finished my degree, and uh, I've been here ever since. You know, being a Nets patriot is not like my German grandfather who simply left Germany and, yeah. you know, never returned. You know, maybe he wrote a letter once in a while. If you're an expatriate nowadays, well, you can fly home. Uh, mm-hmm. I know people who do it three or four times a year. Me, I generally do it once a year. Yeah, yeah. so you don't feel so, completely disconnected from uh, life over there in the U.S., but it must give you, I suppose, a different perspective on what's happened to America in the last few decades, how things have changed over the years. Yes, being an expatriate really is an interesting experience in that way because you can see both the trees and the forest. You know what it's like living there. You know what the daily existence is like. You you understand the political culture. But when you've been away for a few years and you watch it from outside, that gives you a perspective that people in the country don't have. Hmm. I found that very uh, important in my writing and uh, novels and also uh, what I've written, essays and things like that, yeah. Hmm. Yes, uh, I'll direct people to your website a little later on because you have, uh, obviously you mentioned your books on your website, but also other writings as well. I mean, do you find that students over there in Spain actually quiz you about what's going on, not only in America, but how American policy, foreign policy particularly, is impacting the world? Do they want you to sort of be a commentator, make sense of it for them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's actually one of the rather odd experiences of being an expatriate. You you leave your country because, well, you prefer living somewhere else, mm. but you find yourself being a representative of the country. I mean, if you just live in Cincinnati, you're just one more person, but you live here in Spain and you're an American. So, yeah, I have to explain uh, American politics quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Rather red-faced in the last few years, I have to say. Indeed. You know, people ask me, how in the world could you elect a Trump? Uh, <laughs> things like that. And here you are having to explain all of that. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, and why did you ever elect a Bush? Well, either one of them. <laughs> either one yeah, of them or a Bush or, yeah. Mm. In recent years, I think Obama and Clinton to some extent uh, are the only ones who sort of gave the country a, a nicer veneer, uh, a friendlier look to it. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Veneer, very interesting term there. Of course, this this theme of veneer anyway, will come up very much as we discuss your book, as we talk about the mm-hmm. the doers and their impact, etc. Um, there we are. There's something for people to listen out for, the doers. Um, well, let's talk about the book itself then. Okay, 11-9. Obviously, it's turning around at 9-11. I think everybody will have seen that immediately. 11-9 and the terrorist who loved bonsai trees. Going to ask you about that in a moment. Okay, without giving too much away of the narrative of your book, obviously, you want people to read your book. I want people to read your book hence the conversation, without giving away too much. Could you give us a brief summary of how the book goes, how it basically runs? Well, the book is uh, basically about a young woman who uh, goes to work on her first day. She's a statistician. She's going to work in an internet, uh, a digital marketing company. And uh, she goes into her 
building for the first time. It's a converted uh, townhouse, a, a brownstone townhouse, Jersey City, New Jersey, which is right across from Manhattan. Well, she goes in and some people try to grab her and the place is full of paramilitaries and some dead people off to one side. But she manages to get away. 20 minutes later, a group of terrorists who have just tried to set off a bomb in the Empire State Building, they botched the job. Uh, they pull up at the same house with the police on their tail. There's a hostage standoff, and uh, it ends badly. And from there, the story kind of goes on to different uh, tracks. One is the young woman, Trudy, escaping from the people who are trying to get her because of, she, of course, knows that what happened with the, the hostage standoff was uh, all sort of a fake. It was not real. It was uh, a false flag operation. Mm. And on the other track is Paul Clippin, who is an, uh, an American official in State Department. And he's slowly being drawn into a, a group that he doesn't quite understand and, until he's actually in it. And this group uh, is sort of a deep state group, and they are making all different kinds of plots. And so it, the two stories go simultaneously, and then about halfway through the book, they connect. And then uh, sparks begin to fly, and you get to the climax of the book. Mm -hmm. So the doers there that you mentioned are this sort of deep state organization, aren't they, uh, behind things? Fascinating. Uh, right. My, my deep state is, uh, there are a lot of different ways of portraying mm -hmm. it. I took a very simple one in which you have about a dozen people, all of whom represent different constituencies uh, in economics, in politics, in oil, in finance, uh, etc., these people are uh, in connection with their constituencies. They're making these plots to turn politics one way and another, both in America and in the world. Yes, in the world, yes. There's some conversation which talks about them being an international, perhaps, collection of groups or something like that, and this is just the, the U.S. one that we're getting to see here. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that really is very interesting. Um, the, the title of the book, mm. the title of the book, by the way, Julian, mm. is um, basically a combination that shows that this book is part drama, which is 11-9, which is the reverse of 9-11, and also a comedy, which is the terrorist who love bonsai trees. It's a combination of both. Right. Okay. The bonsai trees. Why bonsai trees? <laughs> I mean, you, you do mention them a number of times in the book, but they don't seem to do anything except just be this, I don't know, this just this mm -hmm. image image of something trivial. Uh, they're just basically a symbol. Uh, I uh, am kind of a fan of bonsai trees. I have several <laughs> of them myself. Yeah. And uh, I wanted... Uh, a sort of a symbol of order and uh, beauty to go with the woman who is accused of Trudy, the, the woman who escapes. She's later accused of being one of the terrorists. Mm. And that's uh, what I wanted to uh, show with that. Mm. Yes, and I suppose they do come back later in the book where somebody actually says, oh, the owner, she keeps these uh, bonsai trees. She's nothing to worry about and all that, isn't it? Yes, yes, at one point she makes a sort of a public proclamation. That's right. And yes. she mentions her bonsai trees. <laughs> and the next day, one of the headlines in the newspaper is, terrorist loves bonsai trees? Question <laughs> mark. 
Yes, the power of the media. Big, big part of your book, actually, the power of the media, how that works to distort things, and I'll come to that in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, One question here I have is, why did you write a novel about this kind of thing? I mean, you know, most people would think that it might be better to write non-fiction about events like 9-11. I mean, for example, David Ray Griffin, who has written in praise of your novel, he's written many books analyzing data, presenting arguments, and I think most people would think that's perhaps the best way to approach events like 9-11 rather than writing fiction. So why did you write fiction parallel to Mm 9-11? What are you trying to do with that? Um, well, first, yeah, Griffin was very kind and wrote a, a blurb for me. I'm, I'm very grateful to him. Um, as to fiction, the truth is, Julian, I think that we have far too much information and what we need is more synthesis, some voice that puts it all together and say, this is what it means. Mm-hmm. And that's a little of what I'm trying to do in the book. I'm saying, okay, here are the terrorists, here's the deep state, here's the media, here's the public. Hmm. And I put it all together in one book, and I try to be as concise as I can about it. Hmm. And so this way, people, when they finish the book, they can see a reflection of 9-11. They can see how the whole illusion, um, because I believe it was a false flag operation, Mm -hmm. how the illusion was put together, and also how easy it was to put together. For example, in in my book, Towards the End, the official narrative of events about the terrorists who put the the bomb, the Empire State Building, etc., all of that has to do a complete 180-degree turn. And it's done very simply and very easily with some leaks and with some exciting tidbits that are published uh, here and there. And uh, once the official version the new official version comes out, it's all done very smoothly and the public accepts it, which is one of the things that I wanted to sort of demonstrate in the book, how simple it is Mm -hmm. to create this illusion when you have the cooperation of the media. Yes, you're not presenting a conspiracy theory, are you, in this book at all? You are, I suppose you're sort of presenting a conspiracy vision of how things could happen and inviting people then imaginatively themselves to see, ah, I can see now how certain things could knit together to create an event such as 9-11. And that's why I'm saying I think this is quite illuminating, even though it is fiction. Um, It's very positive in that sense. And in fact, at the beginning, you have a dedication. uh, Let me quote your dedication to 9-11 truthers everywhere. Be of good heart. History will be more grateful than our contemporaries. I should think a large number of people listening to this program would hope that is going to be the case. But why do you think that is the case? Do you really believe that history will be more grateful than our contemporaries? Oh, I think that it certainly will. Uh, you know, um, Piers Robinson, who's one of the, the leaders of uh, 9-11 Commentary, made an interesting comment. He said, talking about 9-11 is just not for polite conversation. Nobody wants to hear about it. Mm. To talk about 9-11 with people who do not want to consider that it was an inside job, they reject it. They do not want to talk about it. Um, the media doesn't want to talk about it. Reporters themselves loathe truthers. They loathe the 9-11 truth movement for one reason, because it shows them how much they have to toe the line when it comes to security matters. For another, because truthers are allowed to pursue 
the truth, pursue the, the loose ends wherever they lead. And mainstream reporters uh, are, are not. And that really bothers them. And I think that's one of the things that creates a lot of friction, a lot of anger whenever anybody brings up the alternative theory of 9-11. So why do you think things will be different in future? Is it because there'll be a lot more freedom for people generally to talk about events that are long ago and it won't affect their careers? Is that the kind of thing you have in mind? Yeah, that sort of thing. And also I think that with time... People are not so uh, worked up about it, you know, just as people uh, are willing to consider uh, the Kennedy assassination much more than they were back in the 60s. So, yeah, I think that in history, uh, history will, will thank truthers for bringing to light a lot of things that the normal history, the, the official version, uh, would not. Okay, um, I wanted to discuss a little bit more about the role of the media in your book, because that seems to be quite a big thing that you keep returning to throughout its pages. You have the media hyping events up, making events fit into their predetermined narratives, crafting lies to twist how people understand what's going on, what's been going on, always to sort of favour the official narrative, wherever that narrative happens to be squirming its way in different directions. I love the way you actually do that, where you portray the media. Um, would you say that that is in fact one of the main things that you're trying to do with this book to highlight the narrative control of the media? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, when you have the cooperation of the media to control the narrative or even change the narrative as you need to is much easier. One of the things that I try to emphasize in the book is that reporters are not giving their reports according to somebody's dictates. And there's nobody in their ear jack saying, say this and don't say that. That's not it at all. These reporters in the mainstream media, they know instinctively what they can talk about and what they can't. You know, and it's not something that they object to very much, I think. Uh, I think as long as they, you know, uh, have their jobs and have their prestige, especially on network news, of course, uh, with television, I think they're quite happy to only go as far as they're allowed to. They are not going to go uh, beyond that. So it's really a very sad sort of a situation, but uh, that's the reality of it. You know, I was watching a, an ad for uh, RT television, and the guy says, uh, well, people always get uh, angry about saying, well, the Russian government controls this. But ask yourself, who controls your mainstream media? And it's quite true. You know, there's control both ways. So that's uh, what reporters react to. And it's it's how they continue in their professions. Yeah, yeah you indeed, you have that element of, well, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to lose my job and that kind of thing. Or you, you just wouldn't be in that job unless you thought the right way. You have those sort of, that sort of mentality there. But you also have the direct control element in the story because you have this character called, I think, is it Randy Yannick? I don't know how you pronounce that name. Janik? Uh, Janik, yeah. Janik. Randy Janik, yeah. Randy Janik, yeah. He's actually a Hollywood producer and he's in this group of the doers, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, he's obviously a very key individual and he, I mean, they talk in terms of perception and management and how he's actually going to influence the way people think by the kind of productions that he is going to either do himself or get his mates to do or whatever. Um, he comes up with a tremendous quote here. This is Randy Janik says, um, somebody's talking about the internet and he says, internet, there's no truth on the internet. In today's society, there's narrative. There's who has the best narrative told by the best people. You've got facts, you've got figs. Great. My narrative 
is going to tell you how they add up. So, I mean, he's not just somebody who's staying in there because he's thinking the right way. He is actually somebody who's injecting deliberately falsehood into the media landscape, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, I always try to give my characters their credit where it's due. Yes. Janik also is uh, a realist. That's the way it is. Mm. Um, it's who has the best narrative. There's sort of a, a reply to that at another point in the book, which is uh, Senator Crick, who is a, a rather old senator and sort of jaded. And at one point she says, oh, narrative. Sometimes I think that all politics has come down to is the telling of a goddamn bedtime story. And she kind of bemoans uh, how this all is. And I think those are the two points of view about it. Well, you've got lots of characters, lots of interesting characters here, very colourful indeed. Um, you've already mentioned Paul Clippen, we've mentioned Trudy Schelling. Um, we must, and Randy Yitchanik indeed, we must talk about the Rainmaker, because this seems to be the guy who, well, you might forgive me for saying he's a kind of Blofeld character, is that be right? <laughs> somehow in your yeah. in your story. Um, he's, a, he's a Catholic priest, but he's, he isn't really a Catholic priest, and yet... Well, he's quite religious in some sense. How can we understand this character? Well, the uh, the Rainmaker is uh, one of the very few characters in my novels who is actually based on a real person. This was a, a Jesuit priest that I knew some years ago, and he made a few intimations about being involved in American espionage in World War II. And he was a very tough-minded character, very sort of conservative politically. Um, in fact, he was a big backer of Francisco Franco here in Spain. But on the other hand, he had this sort of very romantic, nostalgic side about the Catholic Church, about the Pope, about his faith. And uh, he was, in that way, a very religious sort of a guy. And he didn't apparently see any real contradiction in being very tough and ruthless in fighting for what he believed in because he believed that this was the right side of the question. Hmm. And I'm sure he felt that America was on the right side of World War II and that, and that sort of thing. And so he felt it was very much a, a part of uh, his religious obligation to fight for his side. Um, very interesting character, too, by the way. Yeah, very interesting. But the Rainmaker character himself in the novel, though he's based upon the person that you've just been describing, is more than that, isn't he? He's very cold, and although he has this dimension of nostalgic or sentimental religiosity, he's he's not at all godly in the sense it's very much the ends justify the means. I mean, he'd be quite happy for people to be killed in a false flag attack, and that's okay, because good will come out of it in the end kind of thing. And uh, you know, it's a very, very cold character, isn't he, really? Yes, yes, he is. But there's also a little scene uh, that comes out later on. I don't want to blow too much of the surprise. Sure. But there's a very interesting uh, conversation that he has with Trudy just before she enters the house where she finds, you know, these paramilitaries. He has a little conversation with her. And we find out later on that this conversation has moved him very deeply. And that's what I mean. He is, on one hand, a very cold, calculating character fighting for his side, but on the other hand, has this sort of uh, romantic, nostalgic side to him. And uh, that's what I, I, I really liked about The Rainmaker. 
Yeah, strange character, but a very interesting character. As I say, you're, you're reminded me, of course, of Blofeld. And in fact, he has a cat, doesn't he? But it's not a, not a white cat. Why didn't you give him a white cat? <laughs> <laughs> well, sure that. You, you got me. You got me there. Maybe I can change the story pretty quick. I don't know. And uh, is it right that he has uh, a security clearance beyond the President of the United States? Yeah, he's very proud of having a higher security than the president's. And uh, I put that in because I've heard that there are people like that in American government, just very few of them. But they have a security clearance higher than the president's. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and what about this character, Senator Dorothy Crick? Now, she was a strange experience to read about because initially when I was reading about her, I, I didn't like her. I didn't warm to her. But then actually, as she went on, in a way, I did. Um, she seems quite very cold in some ways, but there was something, I don't know, almost motherly about her in a, in, I don't know, in an odd way. Um, what, what influenced you to write a character like that? Um, really, I, I can't tell you, Julian, uh, simply because okay. I, I don't know. Um, a lot of my characters have a little bit of a root in somebody I met years ago, and that's the, the case of uh, Senator Crick. It's somebody that I knew 30 years ago, uh, an older woman. But uh, as I say, there's always something that I like about all my characters. Yes. And she is very hard-nosed and much more realistic and uh, <laughs> honest with herself than the rest of the people in The Doers. Uh, towards the end of the book, of course, she's really cussing them out for uh, putting together such a harebrained scheme and this and that. And uh, she feels a great deal of affection for Trudy, mm. who uh, was able to get away from those paramilitaries. And uh, she says, there's somebody who knows how to handle men. And uh, yeah, she's, uh, she was a lot of fun to write, actually. Yeah, perhaps it's because she's less of a hypocrite. She more understands who she is, and then maybe that's appealing in a strange kind of way. Yeah. Um, now, your book goes very heavily against the idea, and I think effectively against the idea um, that if there were really some kind of secret conspiracy behind 9-11 events like that, um, well, you know, somebody would have talked. Somebody substantially would have let the cat out of the bag. Enough people would have blown it all apart. Um, obviously, you believe that's false, and you've written that heavily into the script. Um, how does your book actually go about demonstrating that is false? Um, well, in, in the first place, because uh, nobody really does talk. The people who, who are involved in the planning, the people who are involved in the execution, they, they don't talk. And uh, I think in, in the case, for example, of 9-11, the reason is that the people who could talk, who maybe were not involved in the direct planning, who were sort of told to do this and that on 9-11, and, and that was all, they, and they did what they were told, and, and later on they probably realized that they had been duped. The thing is that if you know just a, a little part of a 9-11, you're going to be very reluctant uh, to speak out about it, because you're only going to bring trouble on your head in the first place. Mm. And in the second place, you have to think, okay, here I know something very important about this crime. But if I go to a reporter, is that going to get published? And I'll bet that in the wake of 9-11, lots of people, you know, very discreetly, you know, sidled up to reporters and said, I have to talk to you. I know something about this. And probably the reporter 
you know, got together with the person, listened to him and rubbed his hands and said, "Oof, you know, I, I've got a Pulitzer Prize for the taking here. <laughs> and uh, then they go to their editor and the editor says, well, you know, we're not going to print something that's revolutionary, so forget it. Or in the best case, somebody who's really a, a crusading editor or crusading newsroom, they say, okay, I believe you, uh, but we can't print or, or publish or, or broadcast something like this if you don't bring me two or three more people who are willing to go on the record and they're impeccable in reputation and they're willing to sell the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because one person saying this isn't going to do it. Yeah. And so a lot of these stories, I would imagine, ended up, uh, what they say in the newsroom, they ended up on the spike. They were never published. Yeah. So, you know, the, the idea that somebody is going to talk about these things, give information, I, I think is, is very wrong. And a few people have uh, about 9-11, but their stories, you know, have stayed on the Internet, stayed on 9-11 web pages and have never gotten out. Although it seems to me they're, they're quite newsworthy. So that's, uh, that's the thing. It's just uh, very hard for the truth to get out about these things. Yes, and there's another element, isn't there, that the doers themselves uh, talk about, and that is the compartmentalization of any operation like this, in that, you know, you might have the Navy doing such and such, you might have the police doing such and such, you might have the CIA doing such and such, and operatives within each of those institutions, and they might just see a tiny little bit of the jigsaw. They don't see the whole jigsaw. So if they're going to go, if any of them are going to risk to go to the news and say, look, I can, I can explain such and such happening, unless they can connect that to the rest of it, well, it's nothing much to go on, is it? So that compartmentalization seems to be a very useful tool, and I can well understand how that could happen in real life. Yeah, sure. I would imagine a great deal of 9-11 of was done just that way. I mean, one of the things that sort of makes me bridle is that when people say, okay, Phil, so you don't think it was al-Qaeda, you think the government did it. And I say, no, I don't think the government did it. Because when we say government, yeah. what, what are we talking about? We're talking about departments and agencies and memos and meetings. And obviously, you couldn't keep a secret. You couldn't keep a, a, an operation this big that secret among so many people. Obviously, this was done well outside of government, people who are well connected to government, hmm. but a very small number of people who actually knew about the entire plan. And the rest, I think, were just bit actors who, as I say, the day after 9-11 probably felt that they had been scammed. And I think that's one of the reasons why the whole thing is so easy to keep quiet. Including... Many politicians. I mean, you have here a description of, you know, what, what are the doers for? I think that somebody's actually explaining, you know, what, what's our function in, in making things go the way they should, in inverted commas. And one of the things that they come up with is surprisability and deniability for government agencies. But I mean, this one surprisability I thought was really interesting uh, that, you know, the, the, the politician gets on the TV when the event has happened and, and the shock that they have on their face is genuine shock. Sure, because sure. They don't. They don't even actually know what's going on. Sure. Just take uh, George W. Bush. They're reading uh, to the school children in Florida, and when his aide walked up and told him that the second plane had hit the tower, the shock on his face is real. Yeah. And I don't believe anybody who says that he knew what was going to happen. The shock on his face was absolutely real. He's not that good an actor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think that a lot of the point of it 
was simply the surprisability. The point was to have a camera trained on George Bush's face the moment he found out. And that was very effective. Yes, indeed, which is consistent perhaps with the president not being part of the doers, whereas in fact you do have a vice president or an ex-vice president as part of the doers, which I thought was an interesting term there. Was that perhaps a sort of sideways glance at Dick Cheney? Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not even so sideways uh, either. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, uh, that's basically the, the idea, sure. Okay, well, um, all right, this is an impossible question. I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Uh, but I mean, how close do you think this vision here of the doers is to reality? I mean, uh-huh. aren't they too small a group? Aren't they too much like the sort of stereotypical conspiracy group, you know, all in a little room, yeah. you know, with a, hidden away from the world? And yeah. they're not all smoking cigars in a smoky room and all that. But, you know, the kind of image. It, yeah. It, it, there's something, I suppose, of the Bilderberger group, isn't there, meeting in this sort of mansion house and. I suppose to a certain yeah. extent you're writing a. I, I wonder if those people. You're writing a novel, but I wonder if those people don't laugh about it yeah. sometimes. So, do you feel like that was a good move, perhaps, to bring up some of those stereotypes? Well, as I say, uh, there are a lot of different ways that you can portray the deep state. Hmm. One of the things that Paul Clippin goes through when he discovers all this is uh, he's surprised that the whole thing you know, takes place in such an informal setting, in a, in a hunting lodge uh, out in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. Mm. Um, other deep state portrayals, for example, in Three Days of the Condor, you know, you have computers around and you have the guys answering telephones and Marines standing guard and this and that. There are a lot of different ways that you could do it. It's not even necessary, really, to bring them all together. But for the uh, sake of fiction, you've got to do that. And uh, this is just part of, you know, the sort of limitation of fiction, you might say, which is that you have to Mm -hmm. put it all together in one room in some way. And so I chose the the simplest form that I could. Um, There was one aspect to this. Um, Paul Clippen um, he gets so far into this group, doesn't he? Yeah. And uh, there's a certain point at which he gets hazed, I think is the term you have for this. Um, yeah. Um, which is, somebody calls it a non-disclosure agreement or something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, basically, he has to watch a video and he gets uh, blackmailed, essentially, with these sort of fictitious indiscretions. If he doesn't stick to the line, his career and his uh, reputation is going to be absolutely destroyed. Yeah, his reputation is going to be uh, ruined and everything. Um, I mean, at that point, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, you know, I thought this is, there's something very believable about that. Um, You've got to keep people quiet if they're in this situation. And there really are ways of doing that. And there was something so true about that, or so very believable about that. Yeah, and uh, I think that's uh, what happens with a lot of people who you know, might be suspect of uh, going to a reporter about what they know about September 11 or or other things. You know, uh, in the book, Paul Clippin is a new and untried member of this group, The Doers, and that's why they're a little bit worried about him. He has a reputation of being a pretty straight shooter, and they're worried about that. And in fact, he has to look a little bit dirty just to get into The Doers. But I, I think that that's a very much a big part of politics. Indeed, yes. Uh, you have a lot of real-life controversial events embedded 
in the story, which is really nice to read, of course, for anybody like myself who's concerned about some of these issues, but also very amusing the way they come in. I mean, you have WikiLeaks gets mentioned. Um, 9-11, of course, many times uh, the role of social media in propaganda. That's the uh, intelligence agency's use of social media. Uh, the one that really jumped out at me, of course, uh, is the uh, Osama bin Laden assassination. Uh, I think that's a great one. May I just read that paragraph there? Because it really jumped yeah. out at me. Um, so um, uh, this is a discussion within the doers here. So but again, the uh, senator wasn't listening. Um, he did the Bin Laden raid, you know, he and the CIA, pre-Mitch Harmon, that is, Ted organizing helicopters and the like, Chet a bit. I didn't like it at all. They had to lose 20 good seals and there were better options. But history had to record that Bin Laden died at the end of an American rifle. Not that he crawled off to die of kidney disease in the mountains of Pakistan. You mean he didn't die at the end of an American rifle? Crick squinted at him angrily. Oh, don't tell me you, you're that kind of fool. Even the White House doorman knows that it was a put-up job. <laughs> um, love the way you just drop that paragraph in because of course because it's dropped into this whole vision of the story that you're giving you know you it does help to illuminate that and think oh yeah this could actually have been that kind of operation brought off you know by the deep state which of course many people myself included do suspect yeah Uh, i I thought it was uh necessary a few times in the book to bring in things that had really happened and that were a bit suspect. There's the Bin Laden, there's the downing of the uh, Malaysian airliner uh, that had flown uh, out of Amsterdam. That's called into question. And and I thought it was necessary to bring in a bit of of Mm -hmm. real events to give the narrative, the fiction of the story, a bit of backbone. Yes, absolutely. So the uh, social media one was another one that got my attention here, where, um, you know, talking about the story coming out or the inconsistencies in the story coming out in uh, in the internet and people becoming aware of these inconsistencies. But uh, uh, this is Randy uh, says, uh, Chet, old friend, if if you want, I'll have three people on Twitter tomorrow saying they were on the bus with her and her story checks out and then recant when pressed by reporters. And I've got another 50 that say they were there too, but it was half an hour earlier. And another 50 will say they were on the bus crossed at the intersection of Charles Drew with the police were already digging in for the hostage standoff. In other words, all sorts of people, hundreds and hundreds of people perhaps, pay to give alternative stories just to muddy the water so that nobody knows what to believe at all. And I love the way, again, that's just thrown into part of the narrative and you think, oh yeah, that's going on, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, as you quoted uh, Randy Janik before, truth uh, on the internet is who has the best narrative. (laughs) And uh, it's a sad thing. Um, The truth really in in the news has sort of been very much diluted. And there's another uh, just a quick mention in the book about how history has been uh, sort of subverted. And uh, we don't really know what our history is because we don't know what's going on with, you know, all of these events like 9-11. So at the end, what is our history? What really happened? And so we don't know. Uh, I just finished uh, an essay in which I concluded that after 9-11, American history is just Plato's shadows on the cave wall. We really don't know what our history is anymore. And that's uh, that's a very uh, sad thing and, and very, uh, very dangerous. Yes. Um, uh, the last thing really I want to ask you about or really to draw attention to really is your general style. Um, I mean, I said at the beginning of the interview that I'm not a very literary person. I mean, one of the, one of the problems I have with fiction generally is 
descriptions. I, I get fed up, really, of reading long descriptions of things. You know, I suppose I'm rather lazy. Um, the way I take fiction generally is through film, so it's yeah. there, it's presented to me. And, uh, you know, so reading long descriptions, uh, particularly in a pre-film era, you know, I, I, I'm a bit impatient. However, you seem to have this ability actually to give lots of description, but in such a way that it still is intertwined with the story, still pushing the story along. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, one of the when, things that yeah. you're, you're a little worried about as a modern novelist is keeping the story moving. Mm. And it's one of the concessions that I make to the modern reader. I keep the story moving and I keep my descriptions of people very short and concise and I try to explain the character as much as possible through dialogue yes that's uh, uh, it keeps the story moving and it describes the character absolutely and that works extremely well another thing about your style is that i mean at times you are very gritty no holds barred i mean you Oh, well, let's just quote this one. As his face cleared the corner, I drove the flagpole through his near eye. It traversed his brain diagonally, and I must have pierced the brainstem. It killed him cold. You know, absolutely <laughs> just yeah. hits you there. Uh, but then, as you said before, you also have the humor side of things as yeah. well. So, um, I mean, the thing is, with a subject like this, you know, I can see that the gritty stuff is going to work. But why do you think the humor works? It does work. But why should humor work in the context of something quite so serious as this? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's because the, the humor provides the highlights of the story. A lot of times when I look at paintings, I see a lot of similarities between what the painter is doing and what I'm doing, how he puts in the highlights to emphasize what he wants to say, what he wants to accomplish in the painting. And the humor, to me, is the highlighting of the drama and the story that's going on. And that's... Um, it's the shadows on the wall. It's the what's moving. It's the little highlights on, on the glass or on the bubble. That's what the humor does. And I think it's very important. John le Carré does that very well. And uh, it's one of the things that I admire about his work. Yeah, I suppose, actually, I picked out an example that would fit that. Okay, so there's a certain point in the story where Trudy has this stun gun and <laughs> she attacks this person and it said what is it um it, which released 10,000 volts into the most unfortunate testicles in the history of maleness yeah. which of course you know up to that point you think oh you know this is lots of action here what's going to happen next and then suddenly that hits you and you, you just laugh out loud i suppose there's a little valve of release there yeah oh, gosh well that's a good example of what i'm saying you you, you put a, li a little bit of humor in at that point and it's much more effective than saying, oh, the guy shouted or yeah. he melted to the floor or uh, yeah. Trudy says, oh, take that or something like that, which is what you find in, uh, you know, in, in a Tom Clancy novel or something like that. Right. Um, the humor is what really makes the, the scene work. Yes. Very interesting how that does work. Um, I want to come to the ending of the book. And do so by coming back to the dedication that you had at the beginning. Two 9-11 truthers everywhere be of good heart. History will be more grateful than our contemporaries. So a very hopeful message there. Um, however, at the ending of your book, although the operation, the doer's operation, is not as successful as they'd hoped it would be, Nevertheless, the media does still manage to massage over many of the cracks in the story. Um, Trudy's heroic speech, where she tells the story, gets distorted by the media. So, I mean, I came away less optimistic than I think perhaps you'd hope I would do. 
So yes, sir. I mean, I, I think you know, that's I mean, right. No, no. Just I must quote this as well because this is near the end. Um, at the end, among the public, eleven nine has lapsed into the sizzling purgatory of wonder inhabited by UFOs, sightings of Elvis, and the succulent mystery of Area fifty one. An eleven nine Hollywood movie came out a year later. So I mean, how hopeful is this really? Uh, not so hopeful. Uh, it's sort of hopeful in the short run that good people. Uh, in the right places can make a difference hmm. in that way. Yes. Yes. Um, but as I say, uh, part of the underlying idea of this, of the novel is that, you know, history has very much been diluted and uh, almost impossible to write now because it's so easy hmm. to distort the reality of, of an event like nine 11 or, or others. It's very sad in that hmm. sense. Yeah. Indeed. So perhaps, coming back to something you were saying earlier on, perhaps the hope is in the very, very long run when it's beyond the effect on people's careers and this sort of thing where people can feel free to write these things. And it could be, we could be talking many, many decades before real hope about these events comes to light. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. look at uh, look at the Kennedy assassination. Uh, you know, it's only now it's sort of... Uh, you, you can talk about it and, and uh, disagree about it, and nobody uh, nobody gets hot under the collar about it. Yeah. Okay, well, um, I mean, one thing I thought as I was reading it, this could be an excellent movie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether you could possibly persuade anybody to do a movie. I mean, how about Eric Stacey? He did one, um, just independently did a very good movie about events connected to 9-11. Uh, perhaps you should get in touch with him. I think it would be a... Yeah. It really would make an excellent movie. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, it would. The only problem is thrillers, political thrillers, are very hard to tell because there's a lot of detail that the audience has to master at the beginning of the film in order to understand the significance of what's going on. Mm. And me with thrillers, I always have to see them two or three times before I really understand the plot of the story. Mm. And so I'm, I'm not, in that sense, I'm not too optimistic about it. Uh, for example, John le Carre's work the best adaptation of his work is a four-part miniseries of four, I believe, one-hour programs called uh, The Night Manager. To tell that story adequately, it, you really needed four hours. Right. And it was well done, but then you understood the whole thing. So uh, actually, Julian, the, the TV guy should call me and, and ask me about a miniseries. That's, <laughs> yes. that's probably the best thing. I hope they do. I'll do what I can, which is not very much. To... <laughs> um, you've had to self-publish this, haven't you? Did you go to publishing houses to try and get it published? Yeah, sure. I, I tried that at first with all my books, Julian. But mm. number one, I don't think anybody's going to publish a book in the mainstream mm. publishing world that obviously calls into question 9-11. And in the second place, the publishing world for fiction especially is just a terrible rat race. The publishers receive thousands, literally thousands of letters uh, of inquiry every month, yeah. it's uh, almost impossible mm. to get any attention uh, unless you're already an established writer. In that case, yeah, you, you might make it. But if you're an unknown like me, it's, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. Well, as I'm going to say to listeners, you should not be 
unknown. Uh, I think it's an excellent book. This is speaking as somebody who's not normally gripped by thrillers or many other kinds of novels, really, but I was. I really could not put this down. Very unusual for me. It's a very well-written book, and I think quite an important book, because it's illuminating within the, the fictionality of it. Nevertheless, it is illuminating, I think, to some degree, of things that go on in the real world. Presumably, people can find this on Amazon. Is there anywhere else they can find it? On any online book uh, shop, they can find it. Amazon has the Kindle edition, the electronic edition, Uh but any online site uh, will have it. And I will, of course, put links to that in the show notes, and I will put links to your website. Uh, You have more writings on there. You also write satirical poems. Could you tell us a bit about that before we close? Uh, Yeah, I write poems about uh, politics because... I find that just writing the usual op-ed doesn't really excite me. I write op-eds that are satirical verse, oh, about politics, uh, mainly about international politics. And let me read you just one uh, stanza of a poem, and and so your listeners will know what it is I do. This is the latest one that I I published. I publish about two, maybe three every month, both on my website and uh, Mm -hmm. opednews.com. This one is titled, Why the White House Staff Agrees Their Man is the Chosen One, because that's what uh, Trump said, uh, that he's the chosen one. Mm. So here's the first stanza. Should we buy Greenland? Let's give it no likes. Minnesota, it seems, without football vikes. And when I heard Don would pay cash on the barrel, I wondered if truly his mind was in peril, or more to the point, if his staff was but jerks objecting at risk to their jobs and their perks. <laughs> lovely, <laughs> lovely. Oh, well, yes, I shall come by your, your website uh, more often to uh, check out those, because that's very amusing indeed. And again, yes, saying something very important about reality. Thank you ever so much for coming on the program. It's been very, very interesting to speak to you, and uh, just as interesting to read the book. And I do encourage listeners to buy the book, go and get a copy of it and read it. You'll enjoy it very much. You'll find all the links on the, the website, of course, in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on. It's been a delight. Well, thank you, Julian. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 